it is so good to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, as Greg said, uh, my name is Mark Christensen. Been at this church for close to six years now. Uh, unfortunately, uh, pros and cons, but I've been away for a year. Looking forward to being back here this summer. I just want to thank you guys uh, for uh, the ways that you have served me, just through prayer, um, through sending little letters, little notes. Just last week, I was, I'd walked into my house, I think at like 1 a.m. I was studying, um, trying to fit everything into a day, and I just received a little uh, envelope with just some note cards with some encouragement and some scripture on them, and that really comforted my soul. It was a long day. I was tired. I was weary, um, and I just felt the Lord caring for me through those letters. So I want to thank you guys. Um, look forward to the ways that you guys will continue to care for me uh, in these next couple months, and I'm excited to come back here. Uh, and serve alongside of you guys. So we want to direct our attention now uh, to the preaching of God's Word. This is the most significant time of our week. The church gathered together, unified together, sitting under God's Word together. Um, So as we do that, would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful um, for Emmaus Road Church how you have brought this family of believers together. Father, we pray that as we give our attention now to what you've revealed to us in your word, that you'd be kind to us, to let the word take root in our hearts. Father, I was thinking of Psalm 25 here this morning as we were singing. It says, make, known, uh, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Make us to know your ways this morning. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us. For you are the God of our salvation. And it's for you that we wait all the day long. And so, Father, we pray that you would be kind to us. Um, Help us to understand your word, to apply your word. And may it get work done in our hearts, in our families, in our church, and ultimately in our city and to the ends of the earth. So we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Good morning. We are uh, going to be looking at a somewhat obscure book uh, this morning. Maybe it's one that you're not fully aware of or um, accustomed to. But before we do that, I want to share something with you. I don't know about you, but sometimes I find myself scrolling through the internet, and I'll come across a video that someone shares. Uh, You know those kind of people who share everything. Maybe you are that person. Uh, But I found myself... Uh, finding this video, and I opened up this video because the title really struck my attention. It said, you won't believe what happens next. And so I took the bait, and I pressed play, and I got sucked in to this uh, scene from a courtroom. There was a man in this courtroom on trial for murder. The prosecutor was at his seat next to the defendant, ready to bring his accusations And the judge sat before the accused man, ready to give his ruling. The family of the victim sat by, waiting for the assumed verdict that was going to come. One of the brothers of the victim was given a chance to speak. And as the title of the video primed me for, I wasn't ready for what was going to happen next. The brother approaches the microphone with tears streaming down his face. And he goes on to speak about how he's going to miss his brother, sharing about the good memories that they had together. 
And then he addresses the man on trial. And this is what he said. Nothing that we do here today will take back what you've done to our brother and how that's affected our family. You will have to face the punishment that the court gives you today. And then he looked up from the podium and he said, but I want you to know that Jesus saves sinners, just like you and me, if you confess your sins to him. Jesus died on the cross to pay the punishment for our sins that we deserved. I love you, and I wanted you to know that. Now, this man on trial knew the crime he had committed. He knew of the punishment that he would have to face for what he had done. But as the title of the video said, I don't think he knew what was going to happen next. It's the same kind of story uh, the same kind of twist in the story that we're presented with in our passage today. What we're going to see is also in a courtroom. What we are going to see is also a rather hopeless situation. But what we're also going to see is something that is completely surprising. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me, if you haven't already, to the book of Zechariah. You can find that at the end of the Old Testament, right before the book of Malachi. We're going to be in Zechariah chapter 3, starting at verse 1, and I'll read the whole passage this morning. And just out of love for God, His Word, reverence for Him, I want to invite you to stand as I read this together. So Zechariah 3, starting at verse 1. Then He showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan, standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua, Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. You may be seated. Before we dive any further into this passage, let me set the scene for you. Zechariah was a post-exilic prophet and priest. That means he comes in the time following the Jews' exile in Babylon. They returned from captivity by decree of Cyrus, king of Persia. And they returned into the promised land, the land God had given them to rebuild the temple. 
But they faced external opposition, and they stopped rebuilding the temple. It was therefore the job of the prophet Zechariah and Haggai to encourage the people to continue in the work that God had called them to do. And in this chapter, Zechariah is shown a vision from heaven. The book of Zechariah contains apocalyptic literature. And what you might think of when you think of apocalyptic literature is confusing references and chaotic scenes. But the thing we need to realize about apocalyptic literature is that God gives it to us. So he doesn't give it to us to confuse us, but rather he wants to reveal truth to us. So today, God is going to help us understand his word through this vision to Zechariah. And how is, we need to consider when we read God's word, how is he wanting to affect and communicate truth to the original audience, but also how does that extend to us today? So the people have been in exile for 80 years. They've been removed from the land of promise. They've been brought back, but they knew they were guilty. They not only have the guilt of their sin weighing on them, but they've also failed at what God has called them to do. So they might be haunted by the questions, is there any hope for my future in light of the sin that I've committed? Is there any hope for our nation in light of our sin? So yes, these are people who have been restored. Yes, they're back in the land, but it's not what they had hoped for envisioned. It's not living up to what they once knew. So they're laboring under a burden of guilt and in light of an uncertain future. Can they be forgiven? Is there a hopeful future for them? You know, we can have the same questions. Is there any hope for me in light of my sin that won't seem to go away? Is there any hope for me when I can't see what the future holds, let alone what tomorrow might bring? That's what this text in Zechariah 3 is going to speak to. So I believe that the main point of Zechariah 3 is that God saves sinful people so that they can stand confidently before him. We'll proceed by unpacking three facets of our salvation from this text. First will be our undeserved salvation. Second will be our complete salvation. And then finally, our coming salvation. So let's begin point one. As Zachariah is given a tour of these heavenly scenes in chapters 1 through 6, he's shown a picture of a heavenly throne room. A case is being tried before the throne. And if you look at verse 1 with me, we see the parties who are present there. We have Joshua the high priest. He's standing as the defendant, the person on trial. Standing by at Joshua's right hand is Satan, the accuser, ready to accuse him before God. And before Joshua is the angel of the Lord, simply called in verse 2, the Lord. And he's representing God as judge. So verse 2, we jump straight into the action of the courtroom. And before Satan has any chance to bring any charges against Joshua, the Lord says to him, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Satan, his name actually meaning the accuser, is prepared to state his his case against the high priest. But God here is on the offensive 
and rebukes him before he has a chance to bring anything against his chosen high priest. What's God's reason for rebuking Satan? Why would God intervene in this moment for Joshua? Look again, verse 2. It's the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke you. It's because of God's choosing, his electing purpose, that he's turned away Satan's accusations before Joshua, before they are able to slither out of his mouth. It's the Lord who chooses Jerusalem is a theme throughout these first couple of visions. Look with me at Zechariah 1, verse 17. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Now go to chapter 2, verse 12 with me. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. It's because God has chosen his people that he prevents any attacks from Satan to come their way. He depicts them as a brand plucked from the fire. And this is a reference to Amos 4.11, a brand being a small stick or a log that is on fire. It was Israel's enslavement in Egypt that was referred to as an iron furnace, Deuteronomy 4, Jeremiah 11, where God was the one who had delivered and plucked his people out of their enslavement in Egypt. So it's that picture, that picture of Israel's enslavement in Egypt, that helps us understand this picture here. It's a privileged deliverance that Joshua and the people he represented will experience, just like the Israelites experienced a privileged deliverance from Egypt because they were God's chosen people. God gives Zechariah this vision, showing him what his heart is towards his people. We see that God is still for his people. His patience with them hasn't run dry. Time after time, after deliverance after deliverance, God was calling his people to obedience so that he might give them the promised blessing. Yet in unbelief, God's people did not obey his voice. They turned after other gods, delighting in what would only cause them destruction. So Jerusalem was destroyed, the people were conquered, and they were carried into captivity. Maybe you've reached a point in your life where you've amounted so much sin, where you wonder, how could God continue loving me? God's patience with me in my sin has to have reached its end by now. You know, I've turned my back so many times on God, I don't know why he would continue working for me. Friends, let me assure you, this is not who God is. God's purpose in saving you remains unchanged. So press on in faith and repentance. God is pleased to be working in you. So though Jerusalem was destroyed, though God's people were conquered and carried into captivity, God would bring them out of their exile. And in this vision, we're shown that God's electing purposes remain unchanged. The people of Israel didn't deserve this kind of kindness this steady, unchanging commitment that the Lord was showing them. Joshua the high priest didn't deserve this, nor do we here today deserve the same kind of steady, unchanging 
commitment towards us. We're reminded of the Lord's purpose in Deuteronomy 7, where it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you in the house of slave, from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. For all of us here today who know Christ, if we were to ask ourselves, why am I saved? Why am I chosen? Don't look inside yourself. It's nothing you did. It's nothing you earned. We're not special here today. We're here because God made a loving decision. He decided to set his love on us. So there's no grounds for boasting regarding this protecting election that God seals us with. The appropriate biblical response is to be amazed, humbled that God would even give a thought towards us. So while the Lord protects Joshua by reminding Satan the accuser that he's chosen him, we can't proceed any further in this passage without being faced with a grave problem. Look at me with the tension that is there between verse 2 and 3. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. It was in verse 2 that God chose Joshua and protected him. And then in verse 3 you have Joshua the high priest standing filthy before the throne of God, condemned. Satan stood there to accuse Joshua of just this. The high priest standing before God in filthy garments. The evidence is there. The accusations are warranted. Nobody can stand before our holy God, filthy in unrighteousness. Notice with me, looking at this chapter, Joshua is silent. He doesn't say a word in the whole chapter. Particularly here, in the first couple of verses, Joshua's silence shouts at us. His silence regarding his filthy garments shows us that there's nothing that he can say in his own defense. His uncleanness is visible before God. He's guilty because of his sin and deserves to be cast out of God's presence. He not only stands there knowing his sin, guilty of his sin, condemned because of his sin, but he's also standing there unable to help himself. You know, this is where we tend to differ from the picture. If you're like me, and I'm assuming that you might be, in my sin, I don't tend to stand silent before God. We're so quick to speak up and start justifying our sin to God. God, I know I was bitter towards this person, but you just don't understand how hard they are to relate to. God, I know that I barked at my spouse today, but they just don't understand how long of a day that I really had. God, I know that I doubted your provision for me this week, but you just don't understand my circumstances. Our attempts to justify or rationalize our sin, it gets us nowhere. It only adds more filthy stains 
to our garments. So when we're standing before the throne of God, the evidence of our sin condemns us. It leaves us unable to speak or help ourselves. We are in need of a mediator. The high priest, Joshua in this case, was the representative mediator for God, between God and the people. So in this vision, Joshua is standing before the throne of God on behalf of all the people seeking to make atonement on, behalf, on their behalf. And he stands there filthy. This is a serious predicament that the text presents us with. It's not just that Joshua is guilty. He's unclean. The very thing that qualified Joshua for his priestly duties when he would enter the presence of God, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, one time a year to make atonement for the sins of the people, he had careful instructions on what he was to wear. It was those things, his garments, the one thing that would keep him from being killed in the presence of God. They were filthy, unclean. What do we do with this? It was the acceptability of the people of God that depended critically on the acceptability of the high priest. So in this passage, Joshua not only stands there stained with his own sin and guilt, but also that of all of God's people as their representative. We stand before God guilty because of our sin. Our sin makes us unclean, unworthy to be in God's presence. It was commenting on this passage that scholar Barry Webb reminds us of the nature of our sin when he says, it's not merely the problem of having done unclean things, but of being an unclean man. Joshua stands before the angel of the Lord, turned inside out with what he really is on full display, covered with shame and condemned in the court of heaven. Friends, it's not just the sinful things that we do that separates us before God. It's because we're sinful people. It's not merely the problem of having done unclean things, but of being an unclean man or an unclean woman. The prophet Isaiah says it like this, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Because we are sinful people, we, don't, we deserve to be taken away by our iniquities like the wind. Our salvation is undeserved. But the vision goes on from here. And this is where we come to our you-won't-believe-what-happens-next moment. Remember the context of this vision that Zachariah is being shown. People of God had incurred God's punishment in the exile, and they were brought into the land. But they're still stained with sin. They knew that they needed a way back into the presence of our holy God. The thing that Joshua likely didn't know and could have never imagined was that God was not going to remove him from his presence. That would have been the correct expectation, wouldn't it? Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. Now Joshua, standing before the angel of the Lord, clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Rather than removing Joshua from his presence, he removed all in Joshua that kept him 
um, from offending his holiness. Joshua's unrighteousness and all the unrighteousness of the people was dealt with by God. God removes the filthy garments from his people. So here's the promise. God is going to cleanse his people from their sin. There is hope for them. There is a future for them. Maybe you're sitting here today and you've confessed the same sin a thousand times over. God must yawn at my confession. God must turn his back towards me. Is there any hope for me? Maybe you've done something, you regret it, and there are consequences. And you conclude that there is no fixing this situation. The glass is shattered all over the floor. It can't be put back together. That's what your sin is like. Maybe that's what your situation is like. Maybe you feel like that's what your life is like. Is there any hope for me? Brothers, sisters, this text, God's Word says, yes, there absolutely is hope for you. God will cleanse you of your sin if you turn to Him. But God doesn't stop there. It's only part of what he does for his people. God doesn't just remove Joshua's iniquity, but he also clothes Joshua with garments suitable for presence and service in the heavenly courtroom. Notice the emphasis on the agent who works Joshua's complete salvation in this vision. I have taken your iniquity away. I will clothe you. It is God who gives Joshua a complete salvation. He removes his uncleanness and makes him clean so that he might continue to stand before the throne. God's representative is now clothed in God's righteousness. In the other visions surrounding Zechariah 3, if you were to look this afternoon, you will notice that Zechariah always asks a question to an interpreting, an angel that interprets the vision for him. Let's say that. But notice here in Zechariah 3 that Zechariah uh, never asked a question. He finally speaks up in verse 5, and he says, And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head. The lack of questioning of Zechariah here in this vision should make us stand back and just behold the glorious picture of what is being done. Zechariah was so moved by what he had seen that uh, he asked for a clean turban to complete the heavenly garments. The meaning of this vision for Zechariah, it needed no heavenly interpretation. All we need here is a vivid picture of a glorious and complete salvation. So we see in verse 5, the end of the verse, that the angel of the Lord was standing by. The angel of the Lord stood by approving and orchestrating the removal of iniquity and the clothing with garments of divine righteousness. God's righteousness and grace had now been bestowed upon Joshua, the high priest. So here's the full picture of what God does when he saves a person. All the filth, all the sin, all of that which God cannot stand, which He must judge, all that keeps us from being in His presence. He takes it away. 
cleansed. Got any sin that you hold on to or you feel marked by? Let me tell you that there are no stains for the people of God, those who are trusting in Christ. He has taken it away. But that's not enough. God's cleansing of us is not enough. There's more. What happens when you're cleansed? Do you remember when you were cleansed? That glorious freedom that you experienced from your sin? What happens next? Maybe you sin the very next day. It's not enough to be cleansed. We need perfection to be able to stand before the throne in God's presence. So he doesn't just cleanse us. He gives us a perfection that is not ours. It's someone else's perfection that is given to us. The righteousness of Christ. If we are truly honest with ourselves, we don't deserve such grace. It's the picture of Ephesians 2 that Caleb had read earlier. We were dead in our sins. We were living in the passions of our filthy, fleshly garments. By nature, we were children of wrath. We had no words to speak before God. We were guilty. But then, God acts on us in his love. And the gracious crescendo reaches a fortissimo, a loud declaration of what God has done. God, being rich in mercy, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He dresses us in royal robes. And he seats us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Friends, it is by grace that you have been saved. What a complete salvation. Following the display of Joshua's salvation from all the sin that made him unfit for service to God, Joshua is recommissioned to service where the angel of the Lord lays down two conditions with three results to follow. Read verses 6 and 7 with me. The angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. What is seen in the recommissioning of Joshua is that far from being condemned and cast out of God's presence, Joshua has been appointed to effectively serve as the high priest in the temple that will be rebuilt. But what we notice here, Joshua being cleansed of his sin, being clothed in garments of divine righteousness, that's not the conclusion yet. There's more. Can you believe that there is yet more? What we're going to learn is that this text points to a future beyond this vision. And that leads us to our third point. Beginning in verse 8, we see that the angel of the Lord now calls upon Joshua and his priestly colleagues to pay attention to what all of this will result in. Look with me at verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. A sign. These men in their priestly duties would significantly portray the coming figure at the end of verse 8. They were not the full picture. They were not the full realization of what a great high priest would be. But they would point to the one who was to come. 
And the angel of the Lord continues in verse 8. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. This reference to the branch significant based upon earlier prophecy before the exile. Both prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah declared that a branch would come that would bear much fruit. Jeremiah says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, shall execute justice and righteousness in the land, and in his days Judah will be saved. And Israel will dwell securely. You see here in Jeremiah the same thing we see in Zechariah 3.8. The Lord is going to bring and raise up this branch. He's going to bring him forth to reign as a righteous king for his people. A king who will execute justice and righteousness perfectly. He's going to save and perfectly protect his people. Going on, verse 9. For behold, on the stone that I've set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. Remember, when we were talking about apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic literature is not meant to confuse us. It's meant to reveal truth to us. There are many different ways that scholars, interpreters, we'll talk about this stone that we see in verse 9. It's got a bunch of eyes on it. Who knows what that means? While there are many good arguments and explanations out there, what is most clear regarding this stone is the promising inscription that it bears. Back to verse 9. I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And here's what it says. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. This stone placed before Joshua, permanent before him, with the inscription bearing, the Lord's going to deal with all the sin, all the uncleanness, all the iniquity of this land in a day. So what was depicted earlier in the chapter, Joshua's removal of sin, his clothing with righteousness, that one day is going to be the experience of all of creation. There will be nothing left in us that will condemn us before God. God's people will be saved and will dwell securely. And it's in that day, as verse 10 says, that every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. That day, referring to the day when the Lord's going to remove all the sin from the land and make all things new. It's in that day that all of creation will be characterized by perfect peace. No more animosity or hostility between fellow men. No more lies whispered by Satan seeking to con- uh, condemn us before God. No more remaining sin in us that seeks to destroy us. In that day, we will be at peace because the Lord has removed all the iniquity that causes chaos in the land. Don't you long for those days perfect peace. This is the full and final salvation that is yet to come for all those who trust in Christ. As I conclude, I want to share a brief story that I believe brings home what this text is calling us to consider. 
It was Pastor Charles Spurgeon, during his many years of ministry, he had numerous hymns memorized that would come out through his preaching, through his writing. And towards the end of his life, when he was in poor health, he spoke to a small group of friends. That would be one of his final public addresses. And this is what he said. Though I have preached Christ crucified for more than 40 years and have led many to my master's feet, I have at this moment no ray of hope but that which comes from what my Lord Jesus has done for guilty men. He had no hope based off of the many, many sermons he had preached over the years. He didn't bank his hope on all the people he had led to know Christ. He didn't trust in what he could say or what he could do to free himself from his sin. The only hope he had was what Christ had done for guilty men, guilty women like you and me. Our only hope rests in Christ who saves sinners. We don't deserve it. It's complete. And it's coming to a great conclusion. That final day when he returns, when he's going to remove all the remaining sin from the land and make all things new so that we might finally have glorious peace. It was following this short address to his friends that one of these hymns that he had memorized flowed out. And here's what he quoted. When Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of the guilt within, upward I look, and I see him there who made an end to all my sin. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. Friends, we know not only something, but we know someone that the people of Zechariah's day, following the exile, didn't have the privilege of fully knowing. We know someone that we can look to with confidence who deals with our sin. We know the Lamb who was slain to wash away our sin. So look to Christ for forgiveness. Trust in Christ that he has borne all the punishment for your sin. Have confidence that when you trust in Christ, you are counted as spotless, clothed with the righteousness of the King. And together, with all the saints, let's look forward to that day when the Lord will remove all the iniquity of this land in a single day. Let's pray. Father, it's your kindness that you would deal with us, not as we deserve. In your grace, you would remove our sin from us, incurring God's divine wrath against sin on yourself on the cross. And Father, you then further clothe us with garments suitable for presence in the divine throne room. We have access to you, Father, because of the blood of Christ. Father, I am aware that there might be people here this morning who don't know you. People who are sure that they are not Christians, but somehow they, they came here this morning. Father, I pray that the truth of what you do for sinners, for all sinful men who would trust in you, who would look to you, that that is theirs.
Father, if there's Christians here this morning who know you, but who are feeling cold towards you, who are falling away from you, falling away from your people, Father, I pray that in this moment, through this word, by your Holy Spirit, that you would give divine joy to them. Father, that they would rejoice in their salvation, as the psalmist says. So, Father, we are pleased that we are able to know you because of the blood of Christ shed on our behalf. And we look forward to that final day when you are going to complete the work that you have began, removing all the iniquity of this land in a single day. Amen.